when it comes to ensuring your company has top-notch security practices. Things can get complicated fast. With Vanta, you can automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. Vanta's market-leading trust management platform can help you unify security program management with a built-in risk register and reporting and streamline security reviews with AI-powered security questionnaires. Over 7,000 fast-growing companies like Atlassian, Flow Health, and Quora use Vanta to manage risk and prove security in real time. You can watch Vanta's on-demand video at vanta.com slash decoder to learn more. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash decoder. Support for this podcast comes from another podcast. The world's most valuable resource, it's actually data. Our data, based on our behaviors, is frequently being gathered, tracked, stored, and sold. So what does this mean for us? Join host Rafi Krikorian for season two of Technically Optimistic, where he'll take you on a deep dive into how our data is being used and what we can do about it. From social media feeds to foundational human rights, Krikorian leads us into territories both familiar and unexpected with openness and genuine curiosity. New episodes of Technically Optimistic drop every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, editor-in-chief of The Verge. This is a special Thursday edition of Decoder. We've got some news from The Verge we want to share to you, and we want to talk about a really important project we did that we think you're going to like. So my friend and Verge executive editor, Dieter Bonus here. Hey, Dieter. Hey, Neil. How you doing? I'm doing all right. So Dieter has been working on a documentary called Springboard, which is about a company called Handspring, which is very interesting. I think the Decoder audience will be really into this story. That documentary is streaming now on our fancy new streaming apps that you can get on your TV or TV box. We have them for Android, for Amazon Fire TV, for Roku, and Apple TV. I'll just give you a little behind the scenes of streaming app software development. We've been working on these for a long time. It's a little more complicated than you might think to make these apps, make them good, distribute them on everyone's app stores, some real decoder pain points in there. there there's also a big amount of effort in addition to the app development in terms of rights, things that you can distribute on, say, YouTube. When you get it on a streaming TV platform, there's like a whole other set of worries that you got to make sure that you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, one of the one of the pros of a big platform like YouTube is they buy a lot of rights for you for their users up front. Yep. Once you take that in house, you got you got to carry that stuff on your own. But we made the apps are out. Another complication: the Apple TV app is out now. It was on a delay. Apple uses a totally different closed caption format than everyone else. Costs mm-hmm. of development. The things the things you learn while running a media business. But the apps are cool. You can watch our videos in 4K. There's closed captioning available on all those videos. You can listen to this very podcast on our fancy streaming apps uh, on your TV with glorious surround sound. And we're going to start doing some exclusive videos on the platform, including the one that we're launching with a documentary that Dieter and our video team made over many months called Springboard. This is the story about a device that changed technology. Every little pocket device in the future is going to have a fast inexpensive internet connection, and you're gonna use it for voice and data and transactions and so on. Just that audacity of a group of eight people making a phone, you know, it's like eight people is like a dinner party. Yeah. (laughs) So imagine your next dinner party and the host says, hey, let's make a phone. 
one of the venture capitalists literally wrote a check to Jeff saying, I'm invested before we had a set of slides. There weren't chips that you could go buy. You couldn't go to the market and say, build me one of these things. We took off like a rocket. Everybody wanted this product. Now, guess what? You can take a photo right on this thing and send it to somebody. And they said, no, we don't want to do that. Our other devices can't do that. Dieter, what is Springboard? Springboard is the story of, as you mentioned, a company called Handspring. This was one of the very early companies to try and make one of the very first smartphones. It had a storied legacy. It had genius founders. And it had just a a nonstop stream of like corporate catastrophes that uh, prevented (laughs) it from, from being successful. The long and the short is the story of innovation and a scrappy startup trying to do something incredibly ambitious, but there were many reasons why it was not destined to succeed. You know, we call it a scrappy startup, and it mostly was a scrappy startup. But at one point, it was one of the most successful and fastest growing tech companies in America and American business history. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so the, the CEO is Donna Dubinsky, and they had launched the Palm Pilot, which you have probably heard of, and through a series of corporate acquisitions, they ended up being stuck at a modem company called 3Com. So they spun out and started Handspring and convinced 3Com to license Palm OS to them. And they launched the Visor, a PDA, and it was wildly successful relative to other PDAs on the market. And so they had a huge, huge initial rush of interest and sales, and uh, things were rock and rolling pretty fast for them. They were early to the idea of a smartphone. The thing they wanted to make was a smartphone. Mm -hmm. They had some major challenges just on the technical side of building a smartphone that early. It seems like their bigger challenges were just finding a market, finding the right people who could sell this thing to other people. The really interesting thing about the technical challenge in particular is the parts didn't exist. So they wanted to make a phone, a smartphone that had a radio that could handle data. And they just, they couldn't buy it. It did not exist. The entire infrastructure of factories and supply chains that now exist in Shenzhen and, uh, you know, Vietnam and wherever, like didn't exist. So they ended up finding like one company, I believe it might've been in France that happened to make the radios that they needed. And they just started to have to cobble stuff together. And they had to make bets on what actual radio network would exist because there was all sorts of weird pager networks and other sorts of data networks. So they got through a bunch of that. But then the question became, how do we sell this thing? And selling phones direct to consumer was not a real viable business. Everything went through the carriers. And the the problem there is before the iPhone, the carriers had absolute control over phones, not just like which phones they decided to sell or not sell, but how they worked and what they were allowed to do, like from a capability perspective. This is the thing I end up talking about on Decoder a lot. You and I talk about it a lot. The best products don't always win. And there are often gatekeepers, visible or invisible, that are actually shaping the market. Yeah. This seems like a clear, even though they had kind of the best one in this very early category, they were gate kept out of the market in various ways, but it was still popular. People were still covering it. Our, you know, John Fort, who's been on Decoder, he's now an anchor at CNBC. He was a 
cub reporter at the San Jose Mercury News. Yeah. Springboard has is full of clips of his byline as yep. a newspaper reporter. There was a lot of attention being paid to this company. Why were they not able to overcome those gatekeepers? A lot of it was, you know, those gatekeepers were more powerful than they were. Well, maybe not today, but there was a period when after the iPhone, you could get something out to the market without having so much carrier interference. And they did not live in that world whatsoever. So for example, um, they had a hard time getting the phone to sell in some European markets because it didn't have a 10 key keyboard. They, they didn't believe that QWERTY keyboards would be popular and sell. Sprint did not believe that uh, anybody would want to send a picture on their phone. They didn't want that <laughs> to happen because other phones couldn't do it. But Handspring also faced a bunch of sort of external problems. They made a huge deal to get a huge office building right after the market crashed. And that market crash caused all sorts of other problems for them, including um, you know an excess inventory problem from Palm, which ended up forcing the prices down on PDAs. So their sort of cash cow that was funding trying to get off the ground and launch this phone went away. And so they were just constantly on the precipice of running out of cash, running out of resources. And they were on that precipice while everybody around them was actively fighting the success of this thing. The ideas that happened at Handspring, and then that company was reacquired by Palm, and then Palm did a bunch of stuff. Those ideas are sort of everywhere in computing now. Where are the people? Have the, have the people had long careers after the Handspring collapse? Sure. So a few of the key characters. So um, Jeff and Donna went off to do the thing that Jeff always wanted to do in the first place. Jeff Hawkins, for him, smartphones and PDAs was always the side hustle. His <laughs> real interest is in brain research and trying to figure out how neuroscience works and how the brain works. And he's got some unique theories on that. So he finally went off and founded this company called Numenta, and a bunch of the Hansbrick people came along with him because they all really enjoyed working together. So they're still over there doing that. Other players went to other places. One thing that's interesting, this isn't quite the handspring thing, but you can follow some of the software history from Palm over to this other company, Palm Source, all the way to some of the founding team for Android. So it wasn't just, you know, the sidekick team that came over. It was also a bunch of expats from Palm Source that originally were trying to make, you know, bring Palm OS into the future, ended up writing some of the foundations for Android. Just to be clear, the Android project at Google was an acquisition. Google bought Android. Right. And that company was made up, if you remember the T-Mobile sidekick, which was a phenomenon for a hot yeah. minute. Yeah. The team that made the sidekick founded a company called Android. Google bought that company, and they brought over a bunch of ex-Palm people as well. Yeah. And that is the beginning of, of Android. That like theme to me, right? You have ideas, you get them wrong, you keep working at them, ultimately some combination of wireless carriers crushes you out of existence. <laughs> it's a pattern that repeats over and over again, but you can see the the lineage is, is right there. And some of the, the core ideas of how you would operate a phone that connected to a network and was also a computer started at, at Palm in a very real way. Yeah. So one of the people we interview is uh, Rob Haitani, and he was the interface designer for Palm OS and later at Handspring. And his philosophy, he was trying to convince these software engineers that they'd come on, this is how you make mobile software. No one knew in the 90s how to make a mobile app. And so he would have to 
be really rigorous about, no, no, fewer taps and big buttons. And it needs to like be understandable. It has to fit in 160 by 160 pixels. By the way, this was the screen resolution on these devices. And he got tired of explaining how mobile worked to people. And so he finally wrote a book that uh, was based on like the ideas that got attributed to him. It was called The Zen of Palm. And he had all these cones. So uh, an example was like, how do you fit a mountain into a teacup? And, you know, people, software engineers, I don't know, you, you know, something, something, something. You're like, no, you, you don't. You just, you find the diamond. That's the one that goes in the teacup. That's the only thing you care about. <laughs> That's what goes in your mobile app. Everything else can get buried in a menu. It's funny that, you know, we now live in a world I'm very confident that like lots of product managers listen to the show. I, I hear from you. We live in a world where a lot of this stuff is organized. There are systems or competing philosophies of product design and mm-hmm. product management. At that point in time, they were just very nascent. It was the, yeah. the beginning of thinking about how to architect computing systems and interfaces. And they invented a lot of this stuff. There were competing visions, to be clear. So, I mean, Pocket PC was a thing. WinCE, I guess, technically we're talking about, which was a very Windows-esque interface. It had a start button, like a literal tiny start button in the lower left-hand corner. <laughs> um, and, of course, Apple famously you know, made the Newton, and that didn't go so hot because it was also a little bit overloaded. There was General Magic. Uh, that you, you know, Everyone has probably heard of that story as well. That was also overloaded. So one of the things that Palm figured out was you need to make the simplest possible thing that can do the stuff that you want and don't do more than that. And that aggressive willingness to say no, they were one of the first tech companies making consumer products who like really evangelized the idea that you say no before you say yes. And that like that hones your product into achieving specifically the things that you want it to do and have it do those specific things very, very well. And then you can start growing and making it into a more general purpose platform. So you mentioned Apple and that idea about saying no is sort of indelibly associated with Apple and Steve Jobs now. There Mm -hmm. is some connectivity between Apple and the Palm story. Donna used to work for Steve Jobs, Donna Dubinsky. Ed Colligan, who uh, ran marketing and later on became uh, CEO of Palm for a time, also worked for Apple for a time. And so they had relationships with Steve Jobs. More than once, there would be a phone call where it's like, is this phone call about Apple maybe buying Palm or Handspring or not? It's (laughs) unclear. Uh, Maybe it is, maybe it's not. And then the pivot point of the Springboard documentary is there was this meeting where Jeff and Donna and Ed, they went in to speak to Steve Jobs about getting the Mac to support their Visor PDA. And uh, Steve Jobs didn't believe in the PDAs. He didn't believe in their vision. And Steve Jobs tried to present his idea of the digital hub. If you remember, he had the Mac at the center of it, and he thought everything was going to circle around the Mac. And Jeff Hawkins said, no, Steve, I think you're wrong. And right next to Steve's chart on the whiteboard, he drew his own with a phone at the center of it. You know, this was well before Apple had been talking about the iPhone at all. And it may be that this was one of the things that convinced Apple and Steve Jobs in particular to get serious about coming back to the idea of mobile after walking away from the Newton because that had been such a mess. Famously, Ed Colligan, and I know that you try to f- actually get this audio, but it's quoted yeah. everywhere. Famously, Ed Colligan, who was running Palm, said, the PC guys are not just going to walk in and figure this out. 
right. at the time that Apple was introducing the iPhone and other big companies were introducing their phones. You talked to him about that quote. Yep. It turns out at least one PC company figured it out. The other ones <laughs> did not. But you talked to him about that quote. It, you know, this is like a little, a little extra. It's not in the documentary, but I, it's just so fascinating to me. What did he say when you asked him about that quote? Yeah, you're right. It didn't make it into the documentary because explaining the context around this is quite a lot. But it was ahead of the iPhone, but everyone knew it was coming. It was at a Churchill Club breakfast. Uh, he was asked this question. His contention is that he was speaking about the you know PC industry in general, that making phones was very hard. He knew just as well as anybody because they had been trying to make a smartphone before supply chains for any of these parts even existed. And he also understood, based on his history with Palm, that people had been trying to shrink PC interfaces into tiny mobile interfaces for a while, and that also was the wrong idea. So his contention is that he wasn't speaking specifically about just Apple. He was talking in general about PC people coming in and trying to make phones. So here's that clip. It's pretty It's pretty silly because... Um, if people actually go back and look at that interview, they'll see that it was probably an hour long. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and, and I thought it was really great, um, which is one of the sad things about that this one thing came out of it. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, what I meant by that and what is, I think it was taken out of context, was that um, I did not feel like, and first of all, I've been an Apple proponent for my entire life. Mm -hmm. My entire career has been built on Apple products. I, my first company was an accessory company for Apple. My second company was an accessory company for Apple. Um, Radius was an accessory company for Apple. Um, so I'm a huge Apple guy and I always have been. So I wouldn't disparage them. And so when I use PC guys, frankly, <laughs> if I was using that term, it probably was HP, Compaq, uh, Dell, and whoever. Yeah, okay? yeah. But despite that fact, even if Apple's included in that grouping, um, I, what I meant was that these are hard devices to create mm -hmm. and to really nail it, especially the radio side, it's going to take some real effort. I didn't say it was impossible. I just said, it's not going to be super simple. And in fact, if people look back at the original iPhone, it was actually a pretty horrible uh, phone um, <laughs> day one. Um, and it, it did take some iteration for it to get right. Mm -hmm. um, now they had enough other compelling elements around it that people overlooked that to right. a large extent. Right. So, you know, they did really well. And, and, and I really didn't believe, I, I never in my wildest dreams would say, Apple can't create a product in this space. I would have never said that and I would have never felt that. Mm -hmm. um, but I probably just was saying, hey, you know, this is, this is a hard business. And I mean, I don't know, you, you can judge whether or not yeah, he was right about that. But I think that in general, like the, the PC company that figured it out was Apple and a bunch of the others kind of didn't. A bunch of them didn't. Most of them didn't. Microsoft didn't. <laughs> and that, that to me is like the overall lesson here is that you can have the idea early. You can even try to copy the idea, but actually executing the idea is extremely difficult. And one of the themes of Springboard that is very resonant for me is that these things are very fragile, especially yeah. when they're early. And the success actually might not be market success.
Oh, for sure. I think the subtitle for Springboard is the history of the first real smartphone. And, you know, we're aware that Sidekick exists. We're aware that Symbian was around. But this was the, they, they had a the vision for the way that phones should work today. And it was the clearest vision, I think, at the time. But that's that's not enough. You need to understand what the forces are that will prevent your vision from happening. And some of those forces are more than just, can you get the parts? Can you build a good product? Some of it's, you know, stuff like the carriers, stuff like, does the supply chain exist? And so on. When we talk about product market fit, like that's a shorthand for a much bigger conversation of what could prevent your good idea from becoming reality. So this feels like a good place to stop and tell people to go watch this documentary, which is excellent. We premiered it at the Verge's 10th anniversary event, rapturous applause in that room, which is pretty cool. You can go visit theverge.com slash springboard. It has the trailer, it has the information about all the apps. I will just remind you again, we have new Verge streaming TV apps on Android, Amazon Fire TV, Roku, and Apple TV. Just go into the search box, type in The Verge, download the app, watch Springboard. Dieter, congratulations. It's a great documentary. Hey, thanks. Talk to you soon. Take it easy. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of Decoder. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com or hit me up directly. I'm at Reckless on Twitter. If you like Decoder, please share it with your friends. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you really like it, leave us that five-star review. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Box Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Creighton Simone and Andrew Marino. We are edited by Callie Wright. The music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. We'll see you next time. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work.